and welcome to the Generous Marriage Podcast. Hi, I'm Ziv Raviv. And I'm Shachar Erez. And together we have created this podcast to help people create, maintain, and appreciate the generosity in their lives and become more generous. And in this season, season two, episode three, we have an interview with Rob Fisher. Shachar, you have quite a relationship for many years with Rob Fisher, isn't it? I do. Rob was actually one of my first teachers to couples counseling in the, in the Hakomi way. Hakomi is a very special uh, model of psychotherapy that integrates mindfulness and uh, experience, not just uh, talk therapy. And Rob uh, was one of my first teachers to couples counseling in the Hakomi way. And even in this episode, he talks quite a, a lot about Hakomi and uh, Hakomi's unique way of fusing mindfulness in couples therapy and uh, generally in relationship. He's such a wise person. Uh, this is like a, a satsang, this session. It's like a, a meeting with the truth. From my perspective, I just want to say, guys, when we mention Hakomi and we talk about it here with Rob or in general, I need you to know, guys, this system actually really gets results. Like, it's just amazing how you could diffuse an, a bomb with this tool and become a knight and a prince and like a, a king and a queen all through just using a little bit of mindfulness and a little bit of more awareness to your body and, what, and all the other good stuff that is explained in this interview. So let's go right into listening to Rob Fisher and learning a little bit about the way of the Hakomi, what is Hakomi and everything in between. See you at the other end. Welcome to the Generous Marriage Podcast. Fight less, feel appreciated, and have a deeper connection with your spouse. And now your hosts, Shachar Erez and Ziv Ravi. Hello, Generous Marriage Podcast. Hi, I'm Ziv Raviv. And I'm Shachar Erez. Hello, everyone. Hi, today we have Rob Fisher with us. Hello, Rob. Hi, glad to be here. Oh, wow. What a voice. Rob Fisher, thank you so much for joining. <laughs> I, feel, I feel a little bit excited all inside because you wrote the book, uh, The Experiential Psychotherapy with Couples, A Guide for the Creative Pragmatists. And this is a book that ever since 2002 has been helping many couple therapists in training themselves, in learning the deep knowledge and skill of psychotherapy with couples and therapy with couples. And so you have been through quite a long journey of helping couples. You live in Mid Valley, California, but you help couples from all around the world, actually, right? Yes, I see couples on the internet through Zoom and Skype. And I like being able to work with people from different cultures. And I travel a lot. I teach around the world almost constantly. And so, so I really have a deep appreciation for different cultures and, and how couples, couples are very different in different cultures. There's some common issues, you know, between cultures, but then some things are really more highlighted in one culture than another. So it's yeah. interesting to me to learn about that. Yeah. Yeah. Say more. That's interesting. I taught in Japan a while back and there's some interesting things there. The people there can be very reserved until they feel safe. And once they feel safe, then they really know how to use the safe space to have feelings. And so I was doing one session, a demonstration in a, a training. And uh, 
And pretty soon one person was crying in the couple and then the other person was crying. And then the interpreter started crying because I was doing this through translation. <laughs> but one thing that they said goes across cultures pretty much, but the woman there was saying, I want more connection, more intimacy with you. The husband says, look, you know, I provided a house. I provide plenty of money. You can have the food you want. What else could you possibly need? And the idea of intimacy, you know, is in some ways... You know, it's been promulgated by the West and this whole idea of romantic relationships. And then people want intimacy. And usually there's one person that wants it and one person is pulling back from it. And then the couples try to work that out. So that seems to go pretty much across cultures. But in Asia, that's really getting going now. And the expectations, like in, in China, one thing one person told me is, as a woman, you really want to marry somebody who loves you more than you love them. And I said, why would you want to do that? Why wouldn't you want to be equal? And she said, well, because then they won't leave you. It's an interesting dynamic. And also people historically... Where, where is that? I'm sorry. This... Oh, sorry. That was China. And there, you know, people, you know, you get a car, you buy an apartment, and you acquire a husband or a wife. And it's very different. It's an acquisition. Historically, the idea of romantic relationships and intimacy and closeness is really something new on the horizon. The upcoming generation is much more into this. It's a new idea, and people struggle with that there. What about gender differences across cultures? There are some gender differences across cultures. Cultures have different prescriptions of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. Of course, they're gay and lesbian relationships and transsexual relationships, and it gets very complicated. In heterosexual relationships, you know, the role of a man, like the role, as I was talking about in the Japanese couple, the guy was really seeing his role as a provider and he was doing a good job at it. And all of a sudden he's being faulted for working 16 hours a day. It puts him in a terrible bind because people really work terribly long hours. And the idea of intimacy, you know, or the idea that men should be vulnerable is kind of a new idea and you know in the, here in the united states we've kind of particularly if you happen to california there's a lot of pressure out for guys to be vulnerable and real and authentic and intimate and so i think men have gotten kind of used to it although they still really struggle with it but other cultures they struggle more i have a client who's an australian guy and the idea of kind of vulnerability and intimacy is just not in a relationship for that, you know, I'm in it for companionship and sex. And, but, you know, I'm not up for being vulnerable. Guys aren't supposed to do that. You know, that's a woman's job, you know, the, those kinds of beliefs. And the whole women's movement here has kind of allowed women to have more power in the world and go out into the world more. But they often feel in intimate relationships like they've sacrificed some of their softness. So it's a mixed bag. And that's not true for everybody, of course. These are gross generalizations. And men aren't sure if they're supposed to be vulnerable or they're supposed to be strong. And they kind of get, feel like they get mixed messages from women about yeah. this often. And they, it's confusing. What does it mean to be a man? You know, so like, you know, am I supposed to be really tough? And, you know, the only emotion I can show is anger? Or am I supposed to be this vulnerable guy who goes to the movies and cries with his girlfriend? So everybody's really confused. In the United States, they're confused. In other cultures, they're often even more confused, but tend to be following 
the emotional need here that started in the U.S. And the cultures I don't know much about. But the roles I think that men and women have been segmented in often hurts relationships. Um, and people have trouble getting close because they, they feel stuck in one role. You know, if you're in a role as a woman, for instance, and your job is to provide a caring, nurturing, living environment, but you're not supposed to have power or you're not supposed to get angry because women aren't supposed to get angry. When women do get angry, they get as angry as men do. And what happens is, you know, how do you feel about yourself if you go out of the role, either as a man or as a woman? There's tension around roles and it's different in different cultures. So you talked about vulnerability. Yeah. And yeah, both in the US and in Israel, I think in the Western world, you know, I find that vulnerability is one of the main keys for a really nourishing, generous, intimate relationship. Yes. Do you agree with that? What do you think about it? I think, I mean, the first thing, you have an assumption that intimacy is a good idea. That's true. And that's an underlying value in psychotherapy. Like we think, oh, intimacy is cool. Not everybody thinks that. Some guy coming in from a different cultural orientation just thinks like, you know, got our heads up our butts. So I agree. I think if you want love and you want intimacy and you want closeness, that sharing on that deeper level is what builds it. It's the food for intimacy. And without it, then it's very hard to happen. You end up either getting disengaged or you end up in a kind of a lot of conflict. Intimacy is the solution to both and vulnerability about you're, what's really going on inside is the solution to a lot of the problems. But how can you create more vulnerability? What are some of the practical stuff that you advise people to do, couples, in order to make their intimacy stronger and more meaningful through vulnerability? I think there's one question to ask before that question, actually, which is, why don't people want to do it? As therapists, we can tell people to be vulnerable until we're blue in the face. It's a great idea. You know, go ahead and be vulnerable. You know, it's much easier to have your clients be vulnerable than for you to be vulnerable, of course, as a therapist. So, but people have, they've had bad experiences with vulnerability, especially men, I think. If you were vulnerable as a child, you'd get teased. You were a sissy. If you're going out in the work world, being vulnerable isn't exactly the right thing to do can reduce your sense of power and your actual power in any situation. Same thing with women. Can't tell you how many women I've seen her in the business world who find themselves in some board meeting and tears are coming out of their eyes and they're like, they're humiliated by their own tears. People have had bad experiences about being vulnerable. The outside world, with peers, especially you know, grade school, middle school, high school. So vulnerability in some ways has gotten a bad name. They were rejected for it. And I was looking at some videos of how guys pick up single girls recently. That's what I do in my spare time. <laughs> I watched this with my wife because she came across them and was kind of horrified by this stuff. And so she said, you've got to see this. So I watched like about 45 minutes of like how to pick up single girls. And there is no vulnerability there at all. It's all portraying yourself as confident clever and aggressive and women respond to that these videos they respond to that. i don't know i don't think i can get away with it 
and I don't know if you'd get away with it in California, they were all in other countries. But I think there's pressure on men in particular to not be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And vulnerability can be taken advantage of. Your partner could laugh at you or that could, could use the information against you. Oh, you're feeling abandoned because your mother abandoned you, you know, and I'm not really abandoned. You stop, you know, projecting all these feelings on me. You know, I don't have time for it. So it can be misused badly. And so I think the first question is like, why not go there? And I think therapists in particular try to get people to be vulnerable. You can kind of push them in that direction or shame them because, you know, they should be being different. But to really make it stick, they have to have some kind of good experience of vulnerability. So for instance, like in a session, like something that I might do, let's take the example of one person feeling like the other person is not attending to them and they're feeling lonely and they're feeling hurt or angry, but there's this kind of deep pain there. And so what they do is they say something sweet, like you never listen to me, which is not really sweet. It's polarizing. It's a complaint. People don't like complaints. Very few partners will say, oh, honey, you're absolutely right. You know, now I'll start listening to you now that you brought it to my attention. Instead, they're going to come back with a cross complaint. So in the session, I might say, oh, you know, that's, that hurts, huh? And why don't you go inside and let yourself feel that hurt? And so I take it for a moment, I take it out of the realm of communication and have people use mindfulness to kind of be curious and explore. What is this hurt place in me that feels like I'm not being supported or not being attended to? So have them sit with that for a while. And I'll ask them, where does it live in your body? And so they'll usually put their hands somewhere, you know, maybe over their heart. And then I'll say, well, would it be okay if your partner just attends to that place, puts their hand over your hand or under your hand, and without trying to change anything, just gives you company there. And it's often a very touching moment because they don't actually have to say anything, especially with guys, but this is true for women too. You know, the partner can just be with them there and... It cuts through the aloneness of the, of the upset, and it also gives them a way of having that, the intimacy of those deep feelings without anybody really having to do much. You know, you don't have to fix, you know, your partner. Just put your hand there and just give them a connection. The difference between a bad experience and trauma, one of the big differences is that loss of connection there, that you feel so alone. And... There's a theory called memory reconsolidation theory, which basically says that every time you have a memory, it's different. And the differences are accounted for by the environment in which the emotional environment in which you have the memory. So if you're having a memory in the context of a loving partner, it's a different memory than you're remembering that while you're sitting alone in the subway in New York. When you pair, when you juxtapose the old memory of a wound with a new experience of somebody being connected to you, it actually changes the neural network. So when I work with couples, I work often non-verbally. As therapists, we often try to get people to communicate and there's a limit on communication. And a lot of the deepest wounds that people are experiencing in therapy have to do with attachment. Early bad experiences about attachment. The person that should have been there for you either wasn't or they were intrusive or they were abandoning. And 
you can't talk your way out of attachment injuries very easily. And it needs things like touch. And I have a friend who's a therapist in Australia, and he said, I never let couples fight with each other without holding hands. <laughs> I'm not particularly pushy, so I wouldn't make couples hold hands. But I think it's an interesting idea that if a couple said, you know, if somebody says, I'm upset at you, I think one of the best interventions is, say, let's go lie down together for a moment. Let me just hold you, and then let's talk about it. Because that's usually, I'll give you another example from practice. This couple comes in, they're multicultural. She was from somewhere in South America. He was, uh, grew up in the U.S. And they come in and they had had their pre-session fight. So they were well warmed up. And she's, uh, for those of you who can see, she's kind of tapping her chest with her hand fairly rapidly, but kind of patting herself. And in Hakomi's, I'm a Hakomi trainer and I, teach therapists all over the world. And at Comey, we pay a lot of attention to the nonverbal signals because that's most of communication. 70 to 80% of communication is nonverbal. So if you don't pay attention to it, you're a fool, basically. If you just pay attention to the words. So she's tapping herself. I say something really smart, like, oh, you're patting yourself, huh? No, so <laughs> it's like very obvious. Uh, and, and, you know, she kind of looks at her hand, like, what's his hand doing here? And she says, yeah, you know, upset. And I know people from experience, I know that people touch themselves in ways that they wish others would touch themselves. Not always 100% true, but often it's true. I said, you want him to do that for you? And she said, well, I don't know, maybe. So you want to give it a shot? She said, okay. So he gets around behind her on the couch and wraps his arms around her and starts patting her. And she cries for probably 20 minutes without saying anything. At the end of 20 minutes, she's she turns around and she, she looks at him and she says, that's all I wanted. <laughs> we didn't have to have the fight. <laughs> that goes to the attachment injury of just feeling alone and him kind of connecting with her, you know, in this somatic way is really important for couples. You can't always communicate through stuff. People really try. There's a lot of good communication technology out there, but it's limited. It's hard to use NVC when you're super triggered. That's right, because the blood flow is going to your amygdala, which is fight or fight. It's not going to your prefrontal cortex, you know, where you know, oh, yeah, I should make an I statement and talk about my feelings, and I should uh, name my underlying need and make a request and separate out the interpretations that I'm making. That's great. If you're not triggered, you can really do that. But you get triggered, and then it takes a lot of discipline. I love NVC. I think it can save the world. We love it. We love it and we know the challenges of it in, yeah. in life. I think simplifying it actually helps sometimes. Like if you help people say, you know, what are you feeling? What's your experience rather than talking about the other person? And what do you need here? Like you simplify it down. Sometimes people have a little more grasp. Yeah. But often, you know, you just need some physical contact. There's been a rupture in the connection and that's what people are responding to. Can you give us a little bit of an overview about what is Hakomi? You're a teacher of Hakomi and you're a therapist with this, but for people that don't know how that works or what is it exactly, can you give us an explanation, please? The short version. <laughs> That's challenging. There's the three-day version. Yes, John. <laughs> I'm just thinking, I was doing a session this morning. It was actually a Skype session. This woman has a, a difficult issue. She's worked for several years on it with different therapists and nothing really helps. 
remember thinking we could kind of work on the underlying emotional issues here and her beliefs and how they interfere. And I thought, no, what we really need to do is just get into a relationship where I really see who she is. And which we did, and it was co-created. And she ended up getting really connected to her deep essential self and the gift she has to give the world. And she, like her face was completely wet by the end of the session. It's crying and crying, but it is very deep satisfaction kind of being in herself. And so Comey, first of all, really emphasizes the relationship between the therapist and the client, like a non-hierarchical relationship. So the therapist isn't elevating themselves above the client. And the internal state of the therapist really being one of loving presence and deep compassion and meeting human being to human being. John O'Donoghue, Irish priest, is in a book called Anamkara. Anamkara means friend of the soul. I think Akomi, more than any other therapy I've studied or taught, which has been a lot, I've studied and taught a lot, really focuses on that relationship of being a friend of the person's soul. It's deeper than therapy. And within that context, and there are a lot of techniques, but it, it's really, it's based on mindfulness and using mindfulness both externally. So as a therapist, I'm focusing on these, all these micro movements and micro events that are happening that are somatic rather than just verbal. Verbal communication is only 20 to 30% of communication. So I'm watching how somebody does anything. Like I watched with a client, I asked, we could go, I suggested a direction we go in the session. She said, yeah, that's a good idea. She did it so quickly, I could see she hadn't actually considered it. She'd given herself away to me. That was a key to how she gives herself away to other people. So we're watching how people do things. And we're watching things like gestures and posture and pace. A couple comes in, she comes rushing into the room and he comes strolling in after her. You can see the problem already, right? Just in their pace. Or I was watching a couple how their legs crossed. She's got these, like a foot tapper. Can't keep her foot still. You know, she just tap, 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 tap. He's got these really long legs where he can double cross them, you know, over each other. Completely relaxed. And it's a very different way of approaching life. And so by studying that, we actually just studied the tension in their ankles and how they organize their ankles for about 10 minutes in a session. She comes back next time and she says, I was thinking about our ankle tension and I realized that that applies to everything in our relationship. And I'm always pushing stuff and he's always kind of taking his time. And I decided, no, maybe I shouldn't push so much. Wow. So we use the body, we use mindfulness. We have people use mindfulness internally to study what's happening inside of them. And you get exponentially more information from a visceral experiential place rather than just thinking about things. I had many different backgrounds in therapy and many of them were more cognitive and more analytic. And it was such a relief to work with live experience for me. I like experience. I'm an experience junkie. And I think couples and individuals really like it. Akomi really teaches you how to work with live experience and use mindfulness in a very elegant way that's integrated into a session, not just an adjunctive technique. You know, go home and do 30 minutes of mindfulness a day, you know, and write in your mindfulness journey and do a body scan. Akomi really integrates it into sessions rather than as uh, mindfulness is great in and of itself. My wife is a mindfulness 
based stress reduction teacher, so I know a lot about I'm just doing mindfulness and um, integrating it into therapy is it's beautiful, beautiful, enlivening, touching, heartful work. Wow. That story about how the lady could actually identify their entire relationship in the way that she moves oh, her yeah. ankles is touching when something works so well and helps people realize their problems. And that's a great example of using mindfulness in therapy. Can they take it to the real world? Can they use mindfulness in their relationship? Therapy, in a way, is a, a training venue. So like having... A lot of, in America, a lot of kids, when they learn to ride bicycle, have training wheels, two extra wheels on either side so they don't fall over. And so therapy is really like that. You get to practice it in therapy. And then to integrate it, I'll give people homework. Next time you get in a fight and somebody needs to remember, and you can see who's going to remember, you know, to just name what the pattern is. Or somebody remembers to take the other person's hand. Like simple ways of integrating piece by piece. Often you establish kind of an intimacy in therapy that people get used to that vulnerability that you were talking about before. And it's easier to go there when you have some good experiences with it. Like, oh, that was great. I can be vulnerable. She didn't misuse it. He was mm. kind to me there. I'll try it again. Then we were closer and went home and had great sex. You want to have experiences that are positive. And sometimes people go to therapy and they have experiences that are negative. They come out worse. Because you focus on the problems. So you also, in therapy, I think it's important to focus on the resources people have, both as a couple and as individuals. So I yeah, as well. I'm curious, what happens when both sides are low on resources? When they don't have any resources? They're low. They're just very They're low. low, low, low. Travel. <laughs> Travel somewhere. <laughs> That's what happens. <laughs> Hard moment. Take a hot bath. It's true. Often people really are low in resources. And often here, people are just working so hard, there's nothing left over for their partner. And so it helps to take a look at the structure of their life and see if there are ways. There's care and feeding of the relationship. Like you get a plant and you put it in the corner and it has some flowers and looks really nice. And after two weeks, it's dead because you haven't watered it. Nobody told you to water it. You know, do they tell you in the marriage ceremony, you have to water the relationship? So you have to water it. So I teach people how to water it. And often, you know, if somebody spends 15 minutes a day just sitting down with quality time with their partner, there's some resourcing. And I also have people, John Gottman says there should be a seven to one ratio between difficult communications like a complaint and positive strokes like touch, appreciation or acknowledgement. So I really think that's important in just terms of a practical skill. It seems like seven to one, how can I come up with seven good things? But if you don't, the price for not coming up with seven good things is a lawyer. And so it's really important. So I help that provide some resourcing. Oh, my partner sees me or they appreciate that I got their favorite bread, even if it's a little thing. And if they're not resourced, we try to find some place of resource. It could be imaginal place you know it could be a memory and i remember being on that beach in hawaii it could be a pet it could be a spiritual leader it could be an experience they had but often if their partner can soften a little bit like sometimes 
people will be in a hard place. I'll say, you guys are in a hard place together and coming towards the end of the session. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to just uh, take each other's hand for a moment and just let your hands soften to each other. That would be a way of resourcing people. Or you guys are getting yourselves escalated here. So why don't you back off a little bit? Everybody close their eyes, go inside, find a place that feels kind. And from that place, say one nice thing to your partner. There are lots of other techniques that you can use that help build in resources to where you have to find some place that feels compassionate or kind towards each other. And I really emphasize compassion because people act badly towards each other. And usually it comes from a place that's wounded. Even if it's a vengeful place, they're vengeful because they're so hurt uh, by something and they've been hurt in that place so many times and they just come out swinging. And if you can understand that about your partner, that's helpful and not personalizing it. And you can still put limits on it. I really don't want you to talk to me like that. Understand how bad you're feeling inside. Come on over here. You have to catch that early, otherwise you don't want to do that. We could have talked for hours just listening to your voice, Rob. It's very, very calming and deep. And you could see and feel and help all our listeners uh, could understand how deep is your knowledge of the human condition. And I think that Hakomi is genius because I now, while you were talking and giving examples, I noticed a few things that uh, I saw Shachar does and it just works. It just, so it's really quite interesting. Mindfulness, mindfulness is powerful. It is. So with that said, we will say thank you, Rob. And what I suggest is that if people want to learn more about what you do and about your book, just give us your website name. People will hear it, but we will also put a link to it in our website. So uh, where can people learn more about you, Rob? My website is Rob Fisher, R-O-B-F-I-S-H-E-R-M-F-T, as in Marriage Family Therapist, dot com. There's more information. There's actually stuff you can read there. There's, there's some chapters from my book there. And some other, I've written many articles on this stuff too. You can read some stuff there. And your, people are welcome to get in touch with me if they want to. And, and there's also inside uh, like a list of the places where you will be teaching as well, because you teach all over the world. I do. It's often updated <laughs> when I get around to it. But yes, uh, it, it should be updated place where I teach. And there'll be an announcement soon about some webinars, one for therapists and one for couples themselves. It'll incorporate a lot of this information, like how to do it as a therapist and and as a couple, how can you have these vulnerable conversations and how can you use touch and how can you um, repair when there have been ruptures in the relationship? Things like that. So teach specific skills. So that'll be coming up soon. We announced on the website. We will put links to it. And I can say, I can testify that I took Rob's training years ago and learned a tons of it. And I think every couple's therapist will benefit from uh, learning from Rob online or in person and every couple can use his presence as well. <laughs> so we'll do a lot to promote uh, your webinars. Uh, and I, I already feel like I want to get my wife involved and get her in 
with me to your couples webinar. I think it will be priceless. And I want to thank you for all that you do for many years. And also to tell to our audience, guys, we will put the link for Rob Fisher's site on the journalistsmarriage.com website so that you can find it very easily, find out more information about those webinars for couples. If you're a therapist and you're listening to the Generous Marriage Podcast, you can also find the details for the therapist webinars. And thank you so much, Rob, for being here. You're welcome. And I want to thank you guys as well for inviting me and also for both your aliveness and receptivity and kind of kindness in this. And it was, made me want to talk. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening for another episode of the Generous Marriage Podcast. See you next week. Thank you, everyone. See you next week. Wow, Rob really has a way to hypnotize you and magnetize you. And it's just all so, so deep. What did you take away about, about uh, Hakomi and about the ways that can improve your relationship through mindfulness? You know, mindfulness is the most researched topic in psychology in the last 20 years. And still, I, I find that Akomi has a unique use of mindfulness. It's not just sitting in meditation and, and observing yourself. It's how to use mindfulness in relationship. You know, uh, mindfulness is, is a moment by moment, uh, noticing your body sensations and your feelings and your thoughts and everything in your in a world and uh, Komi just uses it in such a beautiful, elegant way that fosters relationships and goes deeper so quickly. I love it. And what I like about it is after noticing how you work with couples and how you analyze all sorts of situations, and we've been doing all sorts of researches for the products of the generousmarriage.com website. And so we noticed, I noticed that it's all really actually practical stuff that work. And mm -hmm. from my point of view, it's, it's a combination of skills related to self-awareness of your body and, and feelings, but also just self-awareness of body language, which is something that can help you in business and it can help you in life and it can help you in your relationship and it can help you in getting uh, you know, your relationship to become more intimate, so many things. Uh, so tell us a little bit, uh, about the bonus that we have on this episode? Yeah, we created a great bonus. I really love it. It's a, a, a document that helps you learn how to use your body awareness through five exercises that are really fun and easy to use and that you know, will deepen your connection with yourself and your connection with your partner. What I love about this exercise, it's, it's really practical stuff. So like the number two out of five, me and my wife, we've been using it for years and it really helps us to self-soothe ourselves. And number five, the one with the kisses, is just going to be very, very entertaining and fun. And uh, you will learn something about your partner that you probably didn't know. So it's really important. You go to generousmarriage.com. It's free. Download the free bonus for episode three of uh, the Generous Marriage Podcast in Season 2, and you will be able to start playing, even if you only do one of those exercises. Honestly, I think the one with the kisses would be the one most practical. But uh, yeah, It's really fun. Yeah, I love it as well. Cool. So uh, what are we going to hear next week on the Generous Ooh. Marriage Podcast? 
Wow, next week is amazing. We have the relationship guru, Alison Armstrong, with us next week with such an amazing interview. Wow, I'm super excited about it. We, tell, we use our stuff here so much and finally getting to actually interview her and talk to her in person, that was uh, heart-blowing. De- definitely an achievement for me is personally that I am really proud about because she's been helping me establish you know the way I think about men and about women and the way that I accept myself even um, it's such such a, a pleasure to talk with this wise wise woman Alison Armstrong next week on the generous marriage podcast stay tuned and I'll see you next week bye